Thank you. Um, thanks, Danielle, one for creating a way, a purpose, a reason for us to be together, which is always so much fun. Um, and I just love being a part of pretty much anything that Spark does. So it's very fun to be here with you. And I'm really glad that there are people in the room who want to know about Deuteronomy because that doesn't always happen. Um, but anytime anyone's like, they're willing to kind of talk about Deuteronomy, I'm like, really? Okay, because Deuteronomy is the best book of the Bible. <laughs> and I just try to brainwash people because I really honestly try to slide that phrase into every talk I give. <laughs> and at some point I'm like, maybe I'm going to convince people that it's true. We are going to talk about Deuteronomy, maybe not all the reasons why it's so fantastic and amazing, but definitely looking at what are things that we can pull out of this book when we're thinking about the idea of chaos, which is interesting to me because even as we were coming up with the title of the conference and that we were going to deal with chaos, chaos was erupting in all of our lives. And so we, could, we spent the whole first moments of our conversation going, oh yeah, well, this person just died, and this is broken, and this thing is bad, and this thing is happening, and we just could, we felt the chaos that was around us. But then as I was trying to figure out, how am I going, going to pull wisdom out of the book of Deuteronomy related to chaos, I really thought, well, first, we need to define chaos, because there's lots of different ways to look at what chaos is. There's the chaos that humans create, right? It, the chaos that we are the ones responsible for. The one that we look out into the world around us and we just know things are chaotic. And often it's because we have built unhealthy structures. We have built these power dynamics where some people are fulfilling their cravings at the cost of the lives of so many other people. And that creates this chaos that seems very visible in the land around us. I mean, we just look out, we're like, obviously, our world is broken. And we have a good, healthy hand in that. But there's another way to actually look at chaos, too. And it's chaos that is created by the presence of God. Which maybe we don't always say God's presence creates chaos. Except, and this is what I was thinking during that song that we opened with, if we're looking at kingdom of God, we can compare it to all of these human empires that we build. And I think that comparison becomes chaotic. Because if we're really truly trying to usher in and inhabit the kingdom of God, if we're really trying to take seriously the idea that God is going to come and dwell among us, it forces us to modify our behavior. We have to. So you get the presence of the divine rubbing up against, I mean, and, and just even thinking about that, the presence of the divine, this fiery righteousness that demands the best of who we are, the best of living into the humanity as we've created to, been created to be, means we have to limit our consumption, our desires, our fulfilling things, building things our own way. So in this way, Deuteronomy has quite a bit of things that it says. And I would like to offer that when Deuteronomy would talk about chaos or lack of chaos, it doesn't look like this. Although this is what we want the lack of chaos to look like. 
When I think of chaos, the way I've been thinking about it even the last month or two, I'm like, oh, chaos to me seems, oh, you know, the world is good. I can put my feet up. Someone will bring me an adult beverage. And I don't have responsibilities. Things aren't broken. But that's not what Deuteronomy says ever in the book. Instead, the book of Deuteronomy is one of the reasons I really love Deuteronomy is it loves the land the way I really love the land. And so when Deuteronomy looks at the land and speaks of the land, speaks of this place where the Israelites are going to inhabit, it recognizes that there is a whole section of the land, the western side of the mountains, that receive the wind and all the precipitation. And so they get ripped apart and there's big, huge, deep crevices that get etched into the ground. But there's enough moisture and enough good, healthy soil that a farmer can put terraces on those ridgelines and can grow food. So there's the potential for humans providing somewhat for themselves. But then Deuteronomy also recognizes that you go five miles over the mountain to look on the eastern facing side where there's very little precipitation. The soil is totally different. You can't, there's not enough water to grow food and the soil wouldn't really allow it to happen anyway unless there was a lot of human manipulation involved to try to get so, uh, food to come out of that kind of terrain. So Deuteronomy already is going to be saying, here is a land, it's the land of inheritance, the land God has set aside to give to his people, and it's a land where farmers can be, and there's precipitation and possibility of growth, but it's also a land that is super dry, and it's really harsh, and it's shepherding terrain, and yet in this place, this is the good land. And Deuteronomy is on this perpetual search for Eden. Deuteronomy borrows a ton of language from Genesis 1 and 2 to talk about what is good. And the land in the viewpoint of the writer of Deuteronomy is the land is good in its variety. So we can even go just a little bit further because we can talk about how the land to the north. So not only do we have farming, shepherding, east and west side of the country, but if you go all the way to the north, it is so green, like pretty much all the time, because they're getting 48 inches of rain. And if you see the soil in the video, it's black and gorgeous and nutritious and everything a farmer could ever want with these great big, huge, wide horizon lines, big, important, massive trade routes. But then you go south and the terrain is totally different. There's not enough rain to grow food. You can't even have sheep in most of this terrain. It's scary and hard. And the terrain, the lack of water, and all the scorpions and snakes and animals that are out there, everything can kill you when you're down in the south. Which even just this basic understanding of the land is so fascinating to me because there are so many microclimates, which I know you understand because you have all these ridges all over the place and it's like the fog, where does the fog sit? Where does it burn off first? It's sunny on this side, but you go to Santa Cruz and they're like swimming in fog, right? So 
all the microclimates that you get all over the place here. It's the same in Israel, where in this place God chose to put his people. There are so many different microclimates, which means there's so many different experiences of life. And it, it is so interesting to me because I think the land itself, with all of these microclimates and people living on the land, it creates a centrifugal force, right? So that, you know, when you spin and everything goes outwards, that's what the land does. The land is going to pull people into their little pockets of isolation. And so when you think of God telling his people, this is the land I want you to be in. This is the land of inheritance. This is a good land. This is where we can refine Eden. There's something about it that is, this is, we're going to have to tackle the chaos of everyone wanting to isolate in their pockets. How do you create unity with people who have the land up north where it's super green and those who have land down in the south where it's super barren? How do you get them to come together and learn about who God is and be God's people and be unified? This, I mean, I just think that's a really fascinating part of how to look at Deuteronomy, because I see that in our own world, who has plenty and who doesn't, and who gets to come, like, and what is, what is God calling us to do as we come together and create unity among so much diversity? One of the things that Deuteronomy says um, in chapter 11, I love this chapter, it is going, it says often, the good land, the land flowing or gushing milk and honey. And so in this, creating the potential for this place you're going into. Deuteronomy almost pauses, almost as if people are going, could you just explain that a little bit more? Like, what exactly do you mean by that? And Deuteronomy starts with, a, in the explanation, starts with a, this is what it's not. And so this is what it says, right? The land where you're going is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sow your seed and water them with your foot like a vegetable garden. Now that's a really odd verse, and the part that's in bold where you water them with your foot is translated in a lot of different ways in all of our different Bible translations because it's a weird thing. And because modern day audiences are like, I don't know what that means. That's a weird, like we don't water with our feet. So translations try to help us. And so they, they add in things or they take away things. But this is when it's actually really good to see the actual context of the land. Because this is an actual picture in Egypt of the great soil that is right alongside the Nile. And if you are a farmer, all you have to do to water your fields is to go to the Nile and get water out of the Nile, dump that water into the trenches that are here. One of the trenches is deep in shadow, but you can see some of the other trenches going away from us up the picture, right? So water flows through the trench. And if you want to, let's say, water that top rectangular section of the garden, all you do is you go to the mud wall and with the heel of your foot, drag it through the mud wall. It opens up that portion of the trench and all the water goes in. So you're literally watering with your foot. 
Except, you know, and you're seeing this great, healthy, wonderful soil that is right next to a river abounding in fresh water. Okay, Israelites listening to this speech that Moses is giving in the book of Deuteronomy, the land you're going into isn't like this, which sounds really unfortunate because the agency that you have I mean, this is, when you read this passage, everything is about the human agency. You can sow, you can water. This is your garden. You're producing these kinds of crops. And to hear, yeah, but that's not actually the land you're going into. It's not anything like it, is a little bit unfortunate. Except that Deuteronomy likes to call the land of Egypt, like throughout the book, the house of slavery, the fiery furnace of oppression. And so what we see in Deuteronomy is this recognition that the land of Egypt, the soil of Egypt, its ability to produce food is way better than anything else. But the social structures, the power structures that have been built in this place are so bad that there is nothing that reflects kingdom of God in Egypt. Instead, Deuteronomy would say, the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which you've already seen pictures of. And this land drinks water by the rain from heaven. In other words, this is an extremely vulnerable land because it has to wait for the rain. It's a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And so... People of Israel, you're going into a place that is not so easy, like Egypt. You're going into a place that's actually a lot more vulnerable, that God's eyes are on it. And so when you look at the sense of agency, who has agency in this land of promise, it's God. God's watching. God's providing rain. Your job as his people is to go in and be just as vulnerable to God as the land is vulnerable to God. That is a super uncomfortable way to think about finding Eden. I personally do not want to find Eden, this solving the problem of chaos. I don't want to do that by being vulnerable to God. Even though my mind tells me, but God is good, God is good, God is good, the self-preservation part of me says, I can do better, except that's not what Deuteronomy is going to say. So Deuteronomy will also go on, and there's several books of the Bible, but Deuteronomy does this a couple times. Um, The Minor Prophets does various books in the Minor Prophets do this too, where there's kind of a, can you just boil it down to the bottom line? Like, can you just give me the simple sentence to remember? Like, there's so many different ways to behave, but what's the bottom line in this? And this is one of Deuteronomy. One of them would be the Shema, which I know that you all quote. You still quote that, Danielle, often and on Sundays? Oh, okay. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, that one. Okay, so there's, there's that, which is at the core and the heart of Deuteronomy. But this is another one of the times when Deuteronomy is like, look, What is it that God wants? What is it? And it is now 
And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today. Right? That, that's it. That's what God wants. He wants you to fear him, which begs all kinds of questions. And feel for, like, we can talk about this to your heart's content <laughs> later on. Ask questions. Because there is an element when we talk about, and I've been in a part of so many different seminars, and people ask, like, what does the fear of the Lord mean? And more often than not, because that fear of the Lord makes people feel really uncomfortable, so scholars kind of backpedal. And we try to make it just a little bit nicer. We're like, it's really reverence. It's having, like, extreme reverence for the Lord. There's an element of that that is true. But I, I also, following the great Ellen Davis, if you don't know her, she's an Old Testament scholar and a total scholarly crush of mine. I adore her. Following her, she talks about how we cannot be so clear in the division between reverence and terror. There has to be an element of terror in the fear of the Lord. Because how else can you witness the power of the divine and not quake just a little bit in your boots? So if the fear and terror isn't there, then you're spiritually dead in the face of such power. So it's, it's both. It's this reverence for the Lord that God wants from us. But it's also a little bit of recognizing that there is a massive power difference between the creator of the universe and me myself in the place where I am. This fear of the Lord, it's supposed to be the kind of fear that drives out all lesser fears. If the fear of the Lord, if, God, if all God wants is he wants the fear for you to fear him and to love him and adore him and follow his commands, and if we honestly fear him, then it should put in order the other fears I have. The other fears of making rent or not, of having health insurance or not, of physically coming under some catastrophe. If I'm truly fearing God, it should put the other minimal fears at a lower level. So how do we do any of that. Well, Deuteronomy 12, and this is going to be, I will say, uh, there's multiple ways to understand Deuteronomy 12 in particular. This is my way. There's a ton of scholars that would argue against it, but I'm, I'm fairly confident I'm right. And so this is why I'm going to share it with you. So Deuteronomy 12 is this great passage that is talking about how are people going to live in this place? So the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy are casting vision for how good it can be, how it can be like finding Eden again. When we hit 12 and on, the whole rest of it are what are the practical points for how we make this happen in all of the diverse microclimates that we're living in, in the fact that we're farmers, we're shepherds, we're all these different kinds of people. How does this work? So this is my super simple graphic. And if anyone is a graphic designer and wants to create something else for me, I'm, you know, open arms. So the star would be the chosen place. 
So Deuteronomy says, or God says in Deuteronomy, that he is going to choose a place where his name will dwell. And there's only one place. So the star represents that place. But the people of Israel live everywhere else. So some of them are in big towns or big circles. Some of them are in these itty-bitty little villages or the small circles. Some of them are very close to where the chosen place is. And some of them are very, very far away, making going to the chosen place super inconvenient. But everyone goes to the chosen place. And you go three times a year. You go for the pilgrimage festivals. And the purpose of these festivals are to tell the story, not of you, but to tell the story of God. What has God done? How has he been behaving? He is the redeemer. He's the one who doesn't tolerate injustice. He is the provider, right? And so these pilgrimage festivals are all about telling God's story. The really beautiful, beautiful thing is if you look at how the ancient Near Eastern world gathered together, they would always gather together and eat from the king's table, is kind of how they tell the story. Except it was very exclusive. So you have the king sitting with maybe the people who are the wealthiest and the richest and the people who can make the best deals with the king, they're at the inner table. Maybe a few other families are going to be in the banquet hall, but you have to be someone to be in the banquet hall. But then, sure, the rest of the city, maybe the rest of the nation, also gets to celebrate a feast. But you don't get to eat at the king's table. But the language of Deuteronomy is, when everyone goes to the chosen place, you sit at God's table as a community to eat together. It is an astounding open table to just say everyone gets to come. And it's not based on what wealth you have to offer God. It's just you're coming. You're rehearsing who God is. And you're also rehearsing who you are as God's people. And so therefore, how should you be behaving? Because of who God is and the provision that is on the table. Who gets to come? Right? Well, in this case, Deuteronomy, which... A lot of scholars talk about how it's the most egalitarian book because it goes out of the way over and over and over to say farmers come, shepherds get to come, the sons and the daughters get to go, the male and female slaves get to go, your children get to go. So who gets to make this pilgrimage, to have the pleasure of eating at the table, to remember the story of God and who you are as God's people? Everyone, everyone gets to go. It's so remarkable that there's not massive division. Um, oh, I had one more picture. I was behind. So this is amazing to me. Um, and it puts a little bit of an issue at the forefront of our minds, maybe. Um, or maybe not yet to the forefront of your mind. But here's where an issue lies. If you're going to celebrate at the temple or wherever God chose to put his name, 
If you're going to eat at God's table, you always take a gift. So people are always taking offerings and sacrifices. And it can be really easy. It can be wheat. It can be a portion of your barley. It can be some of the olive oil, the best of the olive oil from your harvest. But everyone takes something. Which means there are now people who are excluded from that pilgrimage. Right? Because what if you don't have land? What if you've lost your land? What if you're a widow, and if land is transferred through the male line, you don't have land? What if you're an orphan and don't have parents? What if you're a foreigner, and therefore you're not allowed to own land? What then? So it's the potential of being a very exclusionary place. Except, Deuteronomy says, we're not going to do that. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do you see like already there's this opening because God's going like, don't go back through your wheat fields. Just leave the edges or anything that you've dropped because it's for the other people who don't own land and it gives them something to collect. And this is not just like a new and interesting welfare system. There is a bit of that. And it's not just let the poor work for their food as a way to give them dignity. There's a little bit of that. But it's a, make sure everyone has a chance to harvest wheat, olive trees, and grapes. The primary core skeletal part of the agricultural calendar for God's people. All of these others who could be excluded from God's table should have access to that kind of product so they too can now make the pilgrimage. And bring something with them to to sit at God's table. It is such a beautiful aspect of what Deuteronomy does. And if we had time, one of the things I would love to do is to give you all these different verses, so primarily Deuteronomy 12, 16, 17, and 18, and say, okay, let's just think about Who and what, like what is offered at the chosen place where God is, and what is offered in the city gates or in the cities and all the distributed places where all these other people are. And if we went through and we looked and we paid attention to the way Deuteronomy is structuring the place, you would find a similarity. Do you see? I know that the the writing is maybe a little bit small. But at the chosen place, we have things like burnt offerings, tithes, and then all these other offerings that are just very specific. But look how it's like animal offerings and grain offerings and oil offerings. In the city gates or in the distributed places where the Israelites lived, what can you eat? What do you share there? Well, animals, grain, wine, and oil. So it's the same product, some that has been set aside and is given to God, but others where it's shared as a community. And who is always at the chosen place? Judges, Levites, priests, all the people, and foreigners, those who are sojourning among you. 
And if you read any of the, the details of who is in all of the distributed places where you live, judges, Levites, all people, and foreigners, it's the same. And so the way, like, when we really take this idea of what is Deuteronomy doing, and let's go back to this picture. Oops, that one. What is it that Deuteronomy is doing but saying, we're going to create a way where everyone gets to go and sit at God's table and remember who God is. But then it is supposed to influence who you are and the way you behave when you go back home. So there's an incarnational living here. Go and remember all God has done, and then go to your place where you live and behave like God, pretty much. Do exactly the same thing God's been doing for you, but you should turn around and do it for other people. So when we're looking at Deuteronomy and this idea of chaos, I would say that there's a few things that are coming up to the surface that I would love to discuss more with you. So like in the Q&R time, please like just let's dig in because there's beautiful wealth that is in what Deuteronomy has to say. But first of all, I would say Deuteronomy recognizes that our context, like when, when I look at chaos, when I feel chaos, what I want is for God to fix it. I want him to step in and get rid of the chaos, right? And Deuteronomy goes, well, maybe your context is going to be a little chaotic. That doesn't determine if it's good or bad, right? It's all about are you depending on God despite your context? In both kinds of contexts is are you living and communing with God in a real way? And Deuteronomy says over and over, like, the word that is the drumbeat of Deuteronomy is the word remember. And even though Deuteronomy has the law code embedded within it, it never says remember the laws. In all the times it says the word remember, it is always remember what God has done for you. And then go and do likewise. That's, like, remember, 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 not laws, Remember God's character and do everything you can to be like God's character. And Deuteronomy would say maybe part of the chaos you're experiencing is because God is in the business of radical inclusion. And there is something about those from the north, those from the south, the farmers, the shepherds, those who don't have land, the foreigner who is among you, Everyone gets to come, which means it's going to be hard to figure out unity. But that's the beauty. That's the beautiful part. That's the part that becomes like Eden, is everyone coming together and the restored relationship that is there, not only among the people, but people in God. And then this idea of belonging together, which is a huge idea in the book of Deuteronomy that shows up from chapters 12 through 26. And Deuteronomy repeats over and over and over that in this, like, we all belong here to the land. And so we're together. But it requires you as an individual and you as an individual and you as an individual and you as an individual to curb your appetite for consumption. And it is a very uncomfortable 
idea. Even like don't harvest to the edges of your field. Don't go back and pick up the sheaf. Don't go back through your vineyard. It's so hard when you don't know if you have enough food to eat that year. Like your subsistence living depends on how much oil, how many olives you collect over the year. And so in the sense of, you know, that, that inner, I don't know about you, but I like constantly have this, ah, when I'm like super stressed about finances and can I provide and am I, like, am I doing enough? And I get really tense, like in my gut. And Deuteronomy goes, when you feel that, just open your hands. Other people need to be able to eat and you have to curb your appetite to supply all of your own needs and then travel to the Lord's table and remember who God is and who you are because you belong to God. So belonging together is also gigantic. We can also flesh this out a little bit more in the Q&R if you would like. Um, but also is this really beautiful concept of the community responsibility, but also the individual responsibility of which both are responsible in the book of Deuteronomy.